Hey, it's Jade. I don't have much to say this week other than uh, I can't believe it really is the third week. Time is flying by. It feels like it debuted just yesterday. Uh, no? Yeah, no, that's it. That's all I gotta say. So, episode three of On The Way is coming up. And remember, this is a WGC production. Maya King is a 2020 reporting fellow at Politico, where she covers race, ethnicity, and campaigns. She is a 2019 graduate of Howard University, where she was campus editor of The Hilltop and an Annenberg Honors student. She has held positions at NPR, USA Today, Roland Martin Unfiltered, and was a 2018 White House Correspondents Association Scholar. Welcome, Maya. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? How, how are you? I'm good. I am... Um, I am surviving um, and maintaining. I'm here in Florida with my family for a little bit. I'm based in DC, but came down here to escape some of the madness. So Mm -hmm. feeling a little more centered and at peace while I'm down here. Okay. And what part of Florida are you from? Tallahassee, is it? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. right. Because we're both, we're both Florida women. I forgot about that. We are both Florida women. You, in your Twitter bio, you say recovering Florida woman. Hilarious. Um, um, so you're from Tallahassee, but do you consider, you said you're DC based. So DC is your home. That's where your roots are. Um, well, DC is where I live now, but my roots are here in, in Tallahassee. I was born and raised in Tallahassee. But do you consider Tallahassee home? I do. I do. This is oh. where my family is. Um, I mean, this is where I grew up. So yeah, DC is where I am, but home is is Tallahassee. Do you have any intentions of returning to Tallahassee to stay there permanently? Um, maybe in in many many years. I think um, <laughs> I'm, I may retire here, depending on how it looks. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a it's a pretty zen pretty zen place for now. So it's on the list of retirement places. Though I don't think that I would like to spend my young, my young years that I still have here. Uh, not still have. Maya, aren't you, you're, only, you're in your early 20s. You have exactly. so many young years left. It's, yeah. It's exactly my point. So I don't think I'd want to come back here until like 60 or 70. Mm, I see. I understand that. Okay. So you're a journalist. Yes. That's how you describe yourself? Yes. Okay. So what does journalism mean to you? Well, in the context of this, of this moment, that we find ourselves in, as everyone has, has kind of called it, I think anyone can be a journalist, but the most important thing for us to do is to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I put, you know, at the front of, of my responsibility. And, and journalism to me is, is what people say, uh, the first draft of history. I think that's right. We are meant to write about things as they happen we're not necessarily meant to make sense of it for others, though that's something that, you know, we can do. Though journalism to me is is telling the truth and reporting the facts and holding power to account um, and trying our best to be of the most service to the broader public. Oh, that, that makes perfect sense. Now... Um, you kind of brought up how we're in a very particular moment. And of course, you're right with the protests, with COVID, we're living through very, very exciting times. And it's even more of an exciting time to be a race, ethnicity, and campaign um, 
<laughs> journalist, which you are. So tell me, what is, what have these last few weeks been like for you? There's been so much going on. How have you been handling it? <laughs> yeah, um, well, I've just tried to take things one step at a time. I know that is such a generic answer, but it's the best way I can describe things because it it is really a, a very overwhelming time to not only be covering race and covering these issues, but to also be a member of the ethnic group, the racial group that is most directly impacted by all of these issues, to be a Black woman writing about the coronavirus and seeing in real time its disproportionate impacts on Black communities, Mm -hmm. to be in a predominantly white newsroom and watching the reckoning um, unfold over lack of diversity in, in in spaces like newsrooms um, and even help colleagues figure out what our coverage of the protests um, and the unrest that we're seeing across the country should look like while also having to um, manage my own feelings about this and also maintain some level of uh, I, I mean, the word objectivity is like a no-no now. I, I think that there's like a, there's really a, a reckoning on the term objectivity, but the idea behind that word, of course, is for reporters to not put themselves into the story. And so, it's, but that, that has become, at least for me, a little bit more difficult to do because the story is so close to me. Mm-hmm. And just for some of our listeners to sort of give you some background on what what articles Maya's written, she's written articles such as how uh, how defund the police went from moonshot to mainstream, missing data veils coronavirus damage to minority communities, and North Carolina governor rejects GOP's demand for full fledged convention. These are some of her most recent articles as of the um, recording of this episode. So that's just sort of where Maya is in this moment. Um, so. As Maya stated, this is a time of political unrest and a way that a lot of the information about the protests and COVID is being shared, especially for people in our age group who are in this younger age group, is through social media, in particular Twitter. And Twitter, of course, is built so you get rapid information. It's not necessarily in order, depending on how your settings are. So there's just a lot of stuff coming at you. So Maya, I want to ask you, in this era of rapid information, how do you think journalism needs to adjust? Hmm. I think we can start by hiring more people and making journalism a more accessible industry to get into. Mm. Journalism, as many know, is not among the highest paying careers to attain. Um, (laughs) And and, and, I mean, the the steps that it takes to really make it in this industry require a level of established wealth that a lot of people don't have. Many times, Mm. it's not always the case. But uh, internships are often unpaid or don't pay very well. Um, The best you know, positions to go after are often in very expensive cities like Washington or New York or Chicago. I mean, these are all things that keep some of our best minds, I I believe, um, away from being able to really break into this industry because folks, it's, it's it's difficult to afford to be able to do it and make a life. So I think that we are in a time of information overload, and there are so many different stories to tell and so many different investigations and and just uh, opportunities to really get some good journalism done. Um, and I, it'll be, you know, incumbent upon 
gatekeepers in the news media field to try to make this, I mean, they have a real opportunity now to open the doors a little bit wider to allow more people in and, and mm-hmm. figure out ways to, um, uh, to kind of get on top of this story and without totally burning out this group of people that they already have. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I mean, there's opportunities for, for folks to engage in some citizen journalism, which I'm a proponent of as well. So uh, it's multifaceted, but as I continue to make sense of, of my own <laughs> information overload and trying to take things, like I said before, like one step at a time, um, I, I, I hope that I have some help pretty soon. Uh, you brought up the topic of citizen journalism. Could you expand on that more? Sure. Citizen journalism is, I mean, at its core, just very simply the role that citizens can play in reporting the news that happens in their community, whether it's a cell phone video from a protest, or I, th- I think one of the biggest examples we have now is of is the unfortunate video of George Floyd's death. But if we didn't have that um, from the young lady who who took the video, who I'm not sure if we'd be in this position that we're in now. And you know, it's it's it takes many different forms. But I just you know made mention of that because I think it's important for folks to remember that anybody can play a role as long as they are willing to do so with integrity and a commitment to telling the truth and uncovering something important that can be helpful to their wider community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And earlier, you also brought up how journalism isn't necessarily accessible. So can you share with us your process of how you got into the journalism field after college? Sure. Well, I think the. I mean, it, my, my college experience was crucial to my getting into the journalism field um, after I graduated because I was uh, working in journalism as soon as I got to Howard uh, as a freshman, I joined the Hilltop, the student newspaper. I really, I knew that I really wanted to get some good journalism internships while I was in college. And one of the things that hiring managers look for is established experience. And I was like, well, how am I going to get experience without experience? And so college paper college newspapers are the best way to do that. And the Hilltop has such a rich history and it's just a great paper. So that was how I, I started reporting, which is covering issues happening in and around the Howard community. And then after, and so, you know, throughout college, I had internships, as you mentioned at NPR and then USA Today and a few other places and um, was able to secure um, an internship with Politico once I graduated uh, that turned into a fellowship, which is where I am now. Mm. Is political where you'd like to stay after, like if your fellowship translated into a job, is that where you'd like to stay and grow? Or would you like to move to a different city or a different oh, uh, organization? Well, you know, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to say I don't want to stay at Politico on this public podcast. <laughs> but oh, I, oh, that's fair. That's fair. Protect yourself. <laughs> I, really, I really do like being honest, enjoy the work that I do. And I'm happy that Politico is has trained me up in this way to, to learn how to cover politics and hard news, which is something I've always wanted to do. So, you know, I'd love to stay. Yeah. I'm going to go back to something that you mentioned before. You mentioned that oftentimes you are in predominantly white spaces. So how do you, as both a young person and a black person and a woman, how do you advocate for yourself in spaces where you're not necessarily the one with power? Well, I think the way that I think the, the best way for me, at least, has been through connections with um, mentors in the newsroom and in the news industry. 
that's been the best way for me to learn how to advocate for myself. And also just making sure that I have enough leverage to be able to come to the table and and ask for the things that I think I need and deserve. So um, Mm. I'm really early in my career. So advocating for myself is something that I'm still navigating and learning, but, um, Mm -hmm. but I have been able to do so thus far with the help of, um, you know, just people in my, who are in my corner. And I think that's the best advice I could give to anyone, um, especially young black women who are hoping to break into the news industry or any other predominantly white, uh, very aggressive um, space is to make sure that you have people who you know you can trust, who you can go to before making any big decisions and even figuring out what your talking points are when it's time for you to ask for what you what you want. Yeah, and figuring out, you know, what uh, what works best for you often requires seeking wise counsel. That, that's like the best advice I can give. Mm. And um, how exactly do you go about fostering these mentorships and keeping them healthy? What techniques do you use to make sure that you're taking care of taking care of these relationships? Well, it's a little bit more difficult now because no one is in an office space. No one is in public spaces at all, really. So um, I guess it's just checking in with uh, the, the people that I, that I know and they check in with me too. And um, mm. uh, the, the good thing about uh, working at Politico, and I think this is true of a number of newsrooms, a byproduct of the lack of diversity in a lot of these spaces means that the people who are actual members of these minority groups in newsrooms and other places are very tight knit, very close and look out for each other. So that has been really helpful. And in this time, especially, it's been really crucial for us to check in with each other and make sure that we're doing okay. And so mm-hmm. that's what, um, so it's been kind of like a symbiotic relationship where we're all kind of checking in and making sure that everybody's good. And how exactly has your job sort of shifted since everything went virtual due to COVID-19? Can you talk us through that? Sure. Well, I mean, I stopped going into, I mean, I stopped leaving my apartment uh, once everything shut down completely. I wasn't taking the train anymore because that was dangerous. Obviously wasn't going into the office anymore. So everything is from home. Uh, luckily, as a journalist, all you really need is an internet connection, a word processor, and a phone <laughs> and a recording. So um, it's just been me making calls all across the country to people and trying to do what we call shoe leather reporting, which is the traditional reporting style of actually going out, walking around, and talking to people now entirely remotely. Lots of cold calling, lots of, you know, trying to make connections via the web. And yeah, I mean, I think I'm learning how to adjust to this every every day. And it, it changes depending on the stories that I'm telling and the, the people that I need to talk to. Hopefully soon, when it's really safe for us to do so, I'll be able to, you know, travel more and be able to connect with more people and continue to build sources since, like I said, I am still pretty early in my career. But mm-hmm. that's that's really been what it's like so far. Mm. You you keep mentioning that you're pretty early in early in your career. What what do you see yourself doing in twenty or thirty years? Like what where do you want to end up in your career? Um. Well, to be honest with you, Jade, I hope that in twenty or thirty years I am successful enough that I don't have to work <laughs> and I can live my, <laughs> my riches. Um. But being honest, I, mean, I I kind of envision a number of different career paths for myself. I I want to be able to teach and help other and help other young students like me make it in their industries and, and be able to you know speak power to them 
I, I still want to be able to write and I still want people to read my writing and I still want to be able to publish things, whether it's in books or columns or something like that. And I still want to be able to travel too. So I don't really know what shape, you know, that career, my career will take, but I know kind of what I want it to, what I want it to look like. So I, I like, I don't, I don't know what, what the, what the title would be, but a lot of different things, hopefully in like 30 years, I'm just, you know, spending this time sitting on a balcony somewhere drinking my coffee um with mm-hmm. no worries or cares <laughs> that's the dream that is everyone's um, dream though <laughs> yeah do you do writing outside of journalism oh i used to um <laughs> I, I i i used to i i hope i'll be able to get back into it soon um but when I, when I was younger, and especially in middle and high school, I used to write a lot of uh, creative nonfiction and sometimes some poetry. And then once I got to college and started working more and called myself too busy, I, I kind of stopped. But it's something that is uh, that I'm hoping to re-engage. Hmm. Well, I look forward to reading any future work that you write then. <laughs> so where do you get your news, Maya? As a journalist, what do you look to to stay informed? I get my news from politico.com, Jade. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. But I mean, I do, I do a lot of Politico, obviously. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, I follow a lot of journalists on Twitter. So I really do get a lot of news from Twitter. I read, I mean, I kind of spend my morning just scrolling through whatever the, the top stories of the day are, both from my own publication and others like uh, the Washington Post, New York Times, The Atlantic you know, all of, all of those. So but those are really my, my, my big four, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, that's really, that's really where I get it. And I'm, I'm in constant communication with other journalists, both on my teams and from other places. And they sometimes get the new, they obviously, you know, get the news from sources and wherever else they're reading. So working in the news, it's like, it's just all around me. And then now that I'm at home uh, with my mom, cable news is like always on like always on so um, so like even when I'm just coming out to like go to the bathroom or something I'm 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 seeing whatever uh, people are talking to people are talking about does that lead to burnout since you're constantly inundated with with your work um it does a little bit but at the same time it also helps it helps me at least be able to contextualize a lot of the stuff, the writing that I'm doing, because I'm not reading every single article top to bottom, or I probably would really burn out. Though headlines and like the first five or six graphs, paragraphs of of these stories is usually kind of where I'm where I'm where I'm going with a lot of like speed reading, and it's helped me in my own in my own reporting journey to figure out you know what I need to do. Um, and how how stories will take shape. Now, here's a question. So, just for me and our listeners, can you walk us through how one of your articles gets written, like from conception to publication? What is that process like? Well, it takes it 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 takes a number of different things. So, you just mentioned, you know, like we talked about how I digest a lot of news. A lot of times, my story ideas come out of that news digestion, seeing where the holes are, seeing something interesting that I'm like, maybe we should explore that a little bit more. And so from there, if it seems like a good idea, the first step always is to do a little bit of research and see if anybody else has written about it. 
and then from there moving on uh, to pitching that to my editor who is usually asking the same question has anybody else written about it and then if no one else really has you know you start reporting calling people sending emails you know setting up times to talk and 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 see if 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 they're if they want to weigh in um, and then once you know I have what I feel like are a comfortable number of interviews and enough information I can start writing and from there you know it's uh, the story starts to take shape with the help of, of of my editors and sometimes other other reporters too hmm. and what is what is advice you would give to young journalists who are also just starting who are starting out earlier than you mm-hmm. what advice would you give to them for creating these stories and working in newsrooms and such well I would say, you know, just stay curious, stay, stay curious, stay on the phone, try to call people and chat with them. That was what really, really helped me um, early on in my internship and early on in my fellowship was uh, one thing I would do, even if I wasn't sure if a story was going to be accepted by editors, like if, even if I wasn't sure that they might be interested in me following it, I would still call people and talk with them about it (laughs) and see if, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it, and it helped me get to know people and and use them as sources later for stories. Either the, either if that story was accepted, then I already had the interviews and I was able to move faster. Or if it wasn't, mm-hmm. there was undoubtedly going to be a story down the road that I'd be able to call them back for, and it wouldn't be a cold call anymore. So that's one. That's that's like I think of, of something that really helped me um, when I was starting out. And. Here's here's another question. I just I really want to I really want to know because you uh, but a few years ago you were a person the people that you knew were people that knew you. And now you are a, a public journalist. You have a checkmark on Twitter. People know you that you don't know. You are semi-famous in that manner. I guess. Um, I guess. I <laughs> but but um but the but question is like how does that how do you deal with that like with knowing that the things that you say and the things that you do don't just aren't just reflections of you anymore they have a lot there's a larger context that they're operating in I think that's always been true I think that's always been true of things that I say in public and things that anybody says I've, I'm I'm not just a reflection of myself I'm a reflection of my my employer Politico but more than that I mean I'm a reflection of where I come from I'm a reflection of 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 my lineage. And I really take that seriously. I um, I was just talking with some other journalist friends yesterday kind of about this because we're all in a weird place in terms of our social media presence and how much we want to tweet, how much we want people to know about us outside of, you know, our jobs and stuff. And, and you, you just, I I like to just pick and choose what people know about me because I think that's the safest thing is to, because I obviously, you know, you have control over what people know about you. So, um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't like to think about it. Like I'm a public figure or anything like that. I'm just trying to do really good work and I'm happy that I, that my follower count is growing mostly because it means more people have eyes on my work and I'm really proud of the reporting I do. I think it's important and that it helps people. So if people are interested in reading more of that, I'm like, yes, follow me, <laughs> not just for the clout, but you know, I mean, <laughs> clicks, clicks on stories matter. So, you know, like, please mm-hmm. read my stuff. That's that. I'm like, I'm all, I'm happy that, that the, that the message is getting out. It's not really about me. Mm. And another question. So again, you work on the race and ethnicity, the race and ethnicity campaign and campaigns for Politico and inside of these things, of course, you have to deal a lot with people who are 
politically disengaged just in general and like talking about them and how the, and how you can reach them so how can we reach politically disengaged people yeah i think i think that is the question of the 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 time of the era and once we're able to whoever is able to really get a clear answer on that will be very very wealthy <laughs> i mean i think but you know what i think that we're learning how i mean we're seeing in the streets people who would never have ever protested before you know, who had never ever cared about this kind of the issues of racial injustice and police violence against Black people and, you know, lack of diversity and pay parity and the myth of objectivity, all these conversations, like we would not, real uh, under normal circumstances, I doubt we'd be having these conversations also in an election year. So already we're mm-hmm. kind of seeing like, it's unfortunate that it takes chaos and tragedy to get people to wake up. But if that's what it takes, you know, hopefully now we don't have to go through this again. Mm. So there will, I think we have answers there and, you know, we're hearing from folks who say I've never voted before, but I'm definitely voting this election. And it just depends. I think everyone has a different approach to how to reach politically disengaged voters. But the truth at the core of this is that people want to feel like they're being talked to. They want to feel like they're being recognized, that people hear them, that they understand what they're what they're going through and what issues are impacting their lives. So that's really what I what I think is the most effective strategy and that takes a number of different forms. What sort of forms do you see uh do you see most in your field and which ones do you feel are the most effective? Well, you know, in the primary pre-COVID, there was a lot of conversation about black men and and men of color who were not making a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but making a choice between Joe Biden or a Democrat and not voting at all, which ultimately plays into Trump's hand or whoever, or the, you know, Mm -hmm. the rival's hand. So there were a lot of like barbershop um, talks. There were a lot of like church visits, obviously lots of partnerships with organizations that support black men. Um, I remember hearing about a voter registration drive, that was happening with formerly incarcerated men in the barber shop. So it was just meeting people exactly mm. where they are. So, and I mean, we're all digital now, so it's tough, but it doesn't take much to get people to sit in front of a computer anymore. It's just what you have to do to get them to click on whatever you're, whatever you want them to. So I don't think there's any, I don't, I can't point to any um, examples that I think are like, this is the best way to do it. But I think that people are making the effort and reaching out, talking to folks, that's that's kind of the, the best way to do it. Okay. And in your time at Politico, and even in some of your earlier internships, but especially your time at Politico, what is something that you've learned about, you've learned about America and the people of America that you wouldn't have known otherwise? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, something that I've learned about America that I wouldn't know otherwise. Well, um... I actually, I think I'm, I think I'm actually very surprised by um, how much people care about this stuff. I have been, mm-hmm. I'm serious. I mean, I've been, I've been able to travel more and, and talk to folks and, um, and every people are, people are really smart. People know their communities, people know where they come from and, and they're proud of that. And sometimes that does not, but that doesn't always translate to, or that, you know, to political engagement. And even the people who don't really plan to vote still like kind of know everything that's going on and, and, and know like who the power players are and, and know mm. the issues and then just have 
you know, their own reasons for for not for not voting, but maybe becoming politically active in other ways. So I think that's one thing that I've learned is that you don't have like voting and and like political engagement takes a number of different forms and none is neither is better than the other. Now, currently you cover a very broad a very broad spectrum of places. Uh, you do lots of national news. I think the most localized things that you've done so far are about the North Carolina governor who rejected the GOP's demand for full-fledged convention and then how, and then your article on how Black Latino patients are dying at higher higher rates in Florida's hardest hit counties. I think it's the most local thing you've done. Do you have any interest in being a journalist for no, local news or is national really more of your circuit? Um. At this at this moment, no, not necessarily. But you know, things could change. I I would rather elevate important local stories through a national lens. I um yeah. That makes that makes perfect sense. That's understandable. What is something that you wish you had known earlier? That I have time. That I don't have to rush. Um, but you know what? I'm still early, so I'm happy that mm-hmm. I'm realizing that now. Like whenever big stories break, I used to unnecessarily feel like I was behind the ball for not having the sourcing or the the speed to be able to get on top of these stories and write them well and fast. But um, what I realized, like these issues, while the movement is, is a, is a huge story and, and, and these protests are a big story and police brutality is a big story. Like it's not going anywhere, at least not for mm-hmm. any time soon, because even as we work to try to make things right, that's part of the story. And that's going to be a long ongoing process. So I think what we're seeing now is this beautiful, fascinating beginning. And we're going to, we're quickly moving now into um, another stage of the struggle, I think. And that's, that involves, you know, lawmaker involvement that involves, whatever whatever form protest takes um it involves uh you know different ideas being brought to the fore and and different debates um even within the same what we thought at least were the same groups and ideas so uh you know i i think i could i could decide that i want to cover you know race and and protests for the rest of my career and I would probably have stories to tell for mm-hmm. the rest of my career if that was what I wanted to do. So I, for a, but for a while I thought that time just time was running out and I was just going to have to keep bouncing around. But it's okay, but I've also learned that it's okay to bounce around too. And it's okay to 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 kind of experiment with different things and until you figure out what's right and what feels good. Are there any topics in particular you'd like to experiment with? Well, I'm having fun experimenting with all the topics that I've been covering now. So as we know, I, I covered race and ethnicity, and I've also covered uh, Republicans and, and, their, and the, the debate over where the national convention will be held. I've covered ad, ad, political advertisements. And so I, I think I've jumped around quite a bit. And I mean, I imagine there will be others that I'll get to, other stories that I'll get to chase that I haven't done before. And what I'm most interested in right now is 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 learning what um, investigations look like and investigative reporting looks like. And I don't really know. I, I don't know mm-hmm. what that looks like yet. So I don't I don't think I have anything insightful to say on that yet. But um, that is something that has piqued my interest. Well, I wish the best for you in that manner. Now, you did bring up that you enjoyed ads, and I just want to 
bring up something because yesterday, yesterday, this episode's going to come out in August. But on June 23rd, Political did a live analysis of the New York, Kentucky, and Virginia primaries. And I noticed that you called yourself an ads nerd. And that just jumped out to me because I was like, what exactly does that mean? So Maya, how are you an ads nerd? Um, well, I was just saying, like, I, I mean, I, I cover, I used to cover advertisements. So it's something that I follow. And um, I Politico has a partnership with a organization called Advertising Analytics. And we use a lot of their software to look up ads and, and look at look at ads and watch them and even analyze them for stories. So I mean, I don't know anybody else who's really doing that who's not covering ads. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, I mean, that's I, I think maybe ads aficionado is better. I don't know. Oh, um, it sounds fancy. <laughs> it does. <laughs> But that's what, that's what I'm thinking, so. I just want to just briefly touch on because your work in journalism, of course, is important. And as you go further in your career, it'll continue to be important. You'll continue to touch on topics and you'll inform people and that's going to be wonderful. But who is the Maya outside of journalism? Who are you outside of your career? Hmm. I, I mean... I think I think I bring myself to my career, so I I, I still like you know when people ask me this. I'm I still am, I'm like I'm still a writer, you know. I'm I'm still a student. I'm still trying to learn things. I I have a very old soul, you know. I'm an auntie for sure. Uh, <laughs> I I mean I'm a cook, you know. I am a Christian, so I mean it's a, it's a lot of different things. I am a like deep deep lover of, of black people and my people. I, when I, mm-hmm. I think I bring all of these things, you know, to my career as best I can. It informs a lot of the writing that I do, the reporting that I do. And I don't, I don't think there's two different me's. It's all just the one you, and it just comes out in different places. Yeah. At least that's what I, that's what I aim to be. Mm. That's beautiful. That's really nice. Okay. So you you keep saying you're pretty young, but you have you have done this for some time now. You were internship, you were you're a fellow now, you had previous internships. What's your favorite moment in your journalism career so far? My favorite moment in my journalism career? Um, that's a great question. I let's see. Cause I, uh, hmm. <laughs> um I feel like I have an answer for this, but I don't I like I feel like I could point to something. But I think I think the best moments for me have been the opportunities that I've had to um, to interview folks for stories that I would have never thought I would ever engage with so early in my mm-hmm. career, and people who I've admired for a long time who have become sources for me. So, um, mm-hmm. About um, people like Philip Agnew, who was a Bernie Sanders surrogate. I'm, I mean, I'm from Florida, as you know, and you are too. And so you're probably familiar with the Dream Defenders. And mm-hmm. he is a co-founder of that organization. And I just growing up, you know, used to used to follow them in the wake of, of uh, Trayvon Martin's death and was just really um, amazed by the, the, the way they were able to organize so quickly and, and the work that they were able to accomplish. And obviously, Philip was at the at the front of that. And so I was able to connect with him to, you know, interview him about the state of the campaign and, and what Bernie Sanders was doing when it was feeling like this was a, this was his 
back when this was feeling when the election was feeling like it was maybe Bernie Sanders' race to lose. And yeah, I just remember being like, wow, this is really something that I do. And I mean, he's one example, but there are there are numerous others who I've been able and really fortunate to talk to and get information from who after I finish like the job part and like interviewing them and talking to them, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so and so, wow. All right. Okay, so we're coming to the end of the interview. This has been really lovely. Yeah. Uh, it's been really yeah, it's been really great hearing about your experiences. I wish you all the best. And before we leave, I just want to ask you one question. So you're clearly up and coming. You're on your way to success as a journalist. You're on your way to doing really big, bright, and beautiful things. So Maya, how will you know when you've made it? Mm. Jade, what a... <laughs> um, how, will I, how will I know when I've made it? Well, when I'm sitting on my balcony... <laughs> Um, overlooking whatever beautiful city I'm in, drinking my tea with without a care in the world. That's when I'll know I've made it. All right. All right, all right. Okay, so where can our listeners find you and your work? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-Y-A-A-K-I-N-G, Maya A. King. And, you know, any at any given moment on politico.com. I, I share my stories on my Twitter page, but... I mean, they, they are, they are uh, housed <laughs> on politico.com. So that's where you can find me too. All right. Well, thank you. I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you, Jade. And thank you for having me. This was a really nice conversation. And you have just listened to episode three of On Their Way, a WGC production. On Their Way was created, hosted, and edited by me, Jade Madison Scott. The theme was composed by Bajo Alvarado, and the logo was created by Amaka Corey. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WithGoodCo, or tell your friends to tune in next time. If you think about it, most people find new podcasts through word of mouth, so you'd be a big help. If you really liked our episode, please consider buying our merchandise at our website, wgcproductions.com. That's how we keep everything up to snuff. You can also find our episode transcripts and show notes at wgcproductions.com. If you're a journalist like Maya, those show notes can really come in handy because we make sure to sort of tuck in some resources for journalists who are on the way just like her. And before we wrap it up, I just want to say thank you to my 11th and 12th grade journalism teacher, Mr. Marcus. Although I didn't go into journalism, his class really did teach me about the function of journalism in a healthy society and it imbued me with a great respect for the fourth estate. So thank you to Mr. Marcus and all the other journalism teachers out there. Your work really does change lives. And that is that. I'll talk to you same time next week. And until then, remember to take care of yourselves. <laughs>